0: If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at infodenverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching.
1: Well, good morning. Good to see all of you and be together to celebrate the resurrection this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 24. If you don't have your Bible, there's one beneath the chair in front of you or near you. And that uh, page number there, page 738. Uh, corresponds to that. Uh, One of the things that's interesting about the Gospel of Luke is that at the very beginning of his Gospel, Luke tells us that he has made a careful investigation of everything that's happened. And it's believed that Luke interviewed all of these people who interacted with Jesus over the years and wrote his stories out of that, whereas the rest of the Gospel writers had their own experiences and wrote based on that which means that the story we'll look at this morning that involves two travelers means it's likely that they told Luke this story, which might be the reason that this is the only gospel that has this story. And it's a story about two people who encounter the resurrected Christ, and it changes everything. So with that said, I'll begin reading in Luke 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them, that is two of the disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they walked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us what they had seen, a vision of angels, and they said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight they asked each other were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us now this is a little bit of an odd story and i actually most of the resurrection stories found in the gospels are odd stories And you would hope that on a day like this, they'd be a little bit more exciting than what we find in the Bible. I mean, just consider the way that we celebrate Easter. I mean, it's the one Sunday more than ever where attendance at every church swells. It's like the one Sunday everyone's like, we have to be there now. One of the interesting things about having my job is that whenever I meet people, like around town or whatever, or run into someone, I'm like, hey, how are you doing? They instantly, like, apologize for not going to church enough. Like, oh, I'm sorry, I haven't been in church in a while. I'm like, I don't care. I just want to know how you're doing. But it's the one Sunday we all show up, and it's the one Sunday that not only do we show up, but we all dress a little bit nicer. We all put on, like, our pastel clothing and show up looking like Easter eggs. By the way, did you know that the colors connected to Easter are from the late 12th century and were developed by Pope Innocent III? That has nothing to do with my sermon this morning, but that way, if you don't like the sermon, at least you can go home and be like, hey, I learned something. You're welcome. We come here, we sit here, and then something in us, as much as we want to be here. Really what we're all doing is we're just waiting to go home so we can enjoy brunch, right? Where we're going to choke down some ham and wash it down with our mimosas. I say choke down ham because at best we tolerate ham only for the sake of those who insist on making ham and bringing it to brunch year after year after year. But then tomorrow comes and we wake up and we're like, well, that was something. I mean, consider this, Easter, one of the high holy days. Compare it to Christmas, one of the other high holy days. And think about the way Christmas is talked about in the Gospels. I mean, there you have a choir of angels singing in the fields as shepherds watch over their flocks at night. You have a group of kings that we call magi who come from the east and appear before King Herod asking to go and worship the one who was born king of the Jews, while carrying gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. But Easter, it kind of flies under the radar. And when you read the stories, you read things like there's men and women who follow Jesus around for a long time, but they have no idea what's going on. Even the gospel writers don't agree on all the details of the resurrection. They have a different number of angels that are at the tomb They don't agree on which women went to the tomb early in the morning. They don't agree on which disciples went to the tomb to check out whether or not it was empty. I mean, the stories are all over the place, which makes you wonder, like, if the gospel writers are writing to convince their readers and therefore convert their readers, if they're trying to convince them of the resurrection, they're doing a really lousy job. Pastor and author Frederick Buechner talks about this, and this is what he says. He says, the gospel writers are not trying to describe it as convincingly as they can. They are trying to describe it as truthfully as they can. It was the most extraordinary thing they believed ever happened, and yet they tell it so quietly that you have to lean close to be sure what they are telling. They tell it softly as a secret, as something so precious so holy, so fragile and unbelievable and true that to tell it any other way would be somehow to dishonor it. To proclaim the resurrection the way they do, you would have to say it in whispers, Christ has risen, like that. That for whatever reason, this story, it lacks certainty, but in the same breath, it also contains a lot of humanity. Because what it is, is it's people of faith walking around trying to figure out what exactly is going on in their world. It's a very, very human story. And hours before we meet these two travelers on a road to a place called Emmaus, we learn that some women very early in the morning on the first day of the week go to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body with spices. And when they get there, the stone is rolled away, the tomb is empty, and the body is missing. And they're wondering to themselves, what exactly is going on? And Luke tells us this, while they're wondering, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. And the women's fright goes from fright to bewilderment to joy and they get up and they run and they tell the disciples and the others who are with them and Luke tells us and their words sounded to them like nonsense. But Peter gets up and he runs to the tomb and he finds things exactly as the women had described except there are no men there in clothes that gleamed like lightning because apparently they were off to their next assignment. And so Peter leaves puzzled having no idea what's going on. And then just a few hours later, in this scene that's swirling with confusion and doubt and skepticism, these two travelers head for a place called Emmaus. And I'm not so sure they're walking toward Emmaus as much as they're walking away from Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem, for them, symbolized the painful, disappointing end of something that they had enough courage to put their trust in. For them, it was the crucifixion, it was pain, it was sorrow, it was the end. And what made that ending so painful was how promising the beginning was. You see, we don't know much about these two travelers at all. What we do know is that at some point in their life, they chose to follow Jesus, which means they had some sort of encounter with him before we meet them on the road. And who knows what that encounter was? Jesus was an itinerant rabbi who walked around and taught, and maybe there was one time where they sat under his teaching, and they were cut to the heart by what he said, and they chose to give their life to him. Maybe they were some who, in the crowds, who brought their sick to Jesus for healing. And maybe they watched Jesus reach out his hand and touch someone who needed healing. Maybe it was someone they had known for a long time and they thought, this person will never be healed. And yet they see Jesus touch him and this person is brought back to health. Maybe they saw Jesus debate with the religious authorities in his day and they were amazed Because he taught as one who had authority. Whatever it was, they said, I will follow you. I will be your disciple. I will be your student. And in that context of first century Israel within Judaism, if you were a student of someone, it means you left home. It means you walked around with them wherever they went, soaking in their teaching, watching what they were doing, trying to pattern your life after them. And I can't imagine what it was like in those days and weeks and months and maybe years where they walked around after Jesus. I can't imagine the teaching they heard, the conversations they had, the questions they asked. But I'm pretty sure that after a time, their hopes and their longings and their expectations of who Jesus was began to grow. That maybe, maybe he's the Messiah, the son of David, this anointed king the one who will restore the fortunes of Israel, maybe like all of Jesus' followers, their expectations grew over time. And I suspect that just like everyone else, those expectations reached their height a week before they found themselves walking away from Jerusalem, when Jesus came into Jerusalem for the pilgrimage feast of Passover, when they, with Jesus, weren't walking away from Jerusalem, but were walking toward jerusalem if you're familiar with the story a week ago we celebrated what's called palm sunday and it's called palm sunday because jesus is going to jerusalem and he says to his disciples hey there's the colt the foal of a donkey tied up just down the road go and untie it and tell its owner that i need it and i'm going to sit on it and we're going to keep on going seems kind of an odd thing except for the fact that it's deeply connected and rooted to a prophecy in Zechariah chapter nine, which is a prophecy about the coming king of Israel coming to whoop up on his opponents, whoop up being a loose translation of the Hebrew. (laughs) And so Jesus is on the donkey, and what happens? It says people start cutting palm branches and waving them around. This is why we call it Palm Sunday. How many of you, when you were little, were given palms when you were a kid? you're lying. You were given reeds, not palms. And this is why I know that, because I was given reeds as well, and me and my friends used to have lightsaber battles with them. Is anyone with me? Like, they're quoting Jesus. I'm like, whatever. You are not my father, you know, like the whole deal. I'd hit my sister with it. My parents would always take it away, burn them, and then maybe rub it on my forehead the following year. Some of you Catholic friends are like, this guy knows what he's talking about. Palm Sunday, but you ever wondered why palms? What an odd thing to wave around. Well, palms, within 100 years before Jesus, had come to be a symbol of Jewish liberation. It was what they were waving when they were saying, you will no longer oppress us, and we will make sure you take the boot off our neck. And they're saying this, of course, to the Romans. We're told that they're not only waving palm branches, but they're shouting, Hosanna, which means God save us which was the battle cry of the liberators who had fought back another empire a century before. We also know that on that same day that Jesus rides in on a donkey, on the other side coming from the sea are the Roman soldiers and the Roman military coming in to make sure that during this feast of Passover that there would be no rebellion. Everyone's walking with Jesus going, this is it. This is when he's going to topple the Romans. This is the long-awaited redemption of Israel. And it's likely that these two travelers are walking toward Jerusalem with Jesus. But then, a few days before they find themselves walking away, what began with so much hope unravels rather quickly. And in a few agonizing hours, it's all over. Jesus is betrayed at night by a friend of his. He's arrested He's then tried overnight. He's brought to the Roman leaders in the morning. The Roman leaders take him and they torture him and they beat him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and they nail him to an execution stake that we call a cross where he breathed his last and died. Some of Jesus' friends go to the authorities and say we'd like to bury the body before Sabbath which is coming quite soon. They're given permission and they take the body down from the cross. They wrap it in grave clothes They put it in a tomb, they roll the stone in place as evening settles in. And then they begin their walk for home in the silence and darkness that comes with nightfall. And then the next morning they wake up and it's Sabbath which for the religious was a busy day. So I imagine that the city of Jerusalem was bustling as people were making their way to the temple. It also means that none of them would have left Jerusalem on that day because there was laws about walking too far on Sabbath. And so instead they're together. And I imagine they did what many of us do when we've lost a loved one and we sit together in the days after they've passed away. I'm sure they told stories about Jesus Some of the stories undoubtedly made them laugh, but most of the stories probably brought tears to their eyes as they remembered their friend and their teacher. They probably felt everything between sorrow and rage. And then there were those silent moments where they were trying to piece together how it all went so wrong. How could they be so blind? And all they knew in that moment was Jesus was dead. No one was arguing that. Maybe everything that they had believed was wrong. Because the most tragic endings are ones that have the most promising beginnings, aren't they? And so it's ended. And they're walking away from Jerusalem, not going home, but going to a town called Emmaus. Which to this day, archaeologists and historians and scholars still don't know where Emmaus actually is, which leads one scholar to call it the road to nowhere. The road where you're walking away from the pain and from the disappointment. What a sad scene. These two, lost in their own anguish, walking to nowhere. And then Jesus, it says, walks up behind him and walks up alongside of him and says, what's up? Also a loose translation of the Greek. And Cleopas doesn't hide his annoyance. He's like, are you the only one in Jerusalem who, hasn't, who isn't aware of what's been going on there in these days? In other words, he's saying, like, are you clueless? Do you not know? How do you not know? And then Jesus has this really tender two-word response. What things? What things? Of course he knows what they're talking about. It's just that their eyes are being held shut. They're being prevented, it says, from recognizing him. It's a passive verb that says something else is acting on them and they can't see Jesus. And it's obvious to anyone who reads the story, what's acting upon them is their own sorrow and their own grief. Because sorrow and grief have the power to blind us to so much. What things? What would you say to Jesus if he asked you that question? What things? To be clear, I don't mean, what would you say to Jesus if you had been one of those two travelers on the road walking away from Jerusalem and toward Emmaus? What I mean is this, all of us in our own way have walked away from heartbreak, have walked away from disappointment, have walked away from pain, and we have been so blinded by sorrow that we wouldn't recognize Jesus if he walked up next to us too. If he asked you a question, what things, as you walked on your road away from something, away from an ending, what would you say? Maybe I should ask, what did you say? Or what are you saying? Maybe you would talk about the loss of a loved one and that ache in your gut that feels like it's never going to go away. Maybe you would talk about losing a job and all of the stress and anxiety and worry that come with the financial insecurity of losing a paycheck. Maybe you would tell Jesus about walking away from the doctor's office when they delivered the life-altering news of a terminal diagnosis for you or for someone you love. Maybe you would talk about walking away from a parent's or a child, or a sibling, or a friend who's fallen into addiction again. Maybe you would just talk about the world that we're living in right now, one that just seems to have this never-ending stream of hate and division and violence. Maybe you wouldn't say anything to him. You would just point to the knife in your back that was put there by someone you long believed to be a friend of yours, the symbol of betrayal. What things? What would you say? What did you say? How are you responding? Cleopas has his own response to that question. and He seems to be speaking on behalf, not just of his traveling companion, but of everyone who would follow Jesus. And, and what he basically says is this, uh, there was this guy named Jesus and I'm pretty sure we had misplaced hope in him. We thought he was the one, we know he's dead, and now no one knows what's going on. So we're walking away. And then Jesus, instead of going, leaving it there, he invites them into a new way of looking at things. He begins to share with them what has been true in the scriptures all along regarding himself. I love that he doesn't steer away from their pain. Instead, he moves right into the midst of it. And he begins reframing their understanding of Scripture they have long lived with. And what is it that reframes the Scriptures? The resurrection. It's their encounter with the resurrected Christ. That is what changes everything. And as they're talking, they keep walking. And whatever Jesus is saying to them is so riveting that it makes the talk seem to fly by. And before they know it, they are back, or they're at the destination that they had planned on going, and they come to the house where they were going to spend the night. But whoever this stranger is, well, he's ready to move on. And you can almost see them like, hey, you should ask him if he wants to stay. No, you ask him. No, no, I mean... You're more outgoing. I know, but you're more persuasive. Fine. And so they begin saying to him, like, man, we've never heard anyone with this kind of wisdom and this kind of insight and this kind of understanding. You're saying things that we've never heard but feel more true than anything we've ever heard. And besides, it's not safe to travel in this country alone at night. Why don't you come in and maybe enjoy a meal? It doesn't seem like they have to ply Jesus too much because he walks right in, and then he does something unusual. You see, the two travelers should have been in the place where they were the host of the meal, which means they are the ones who would take the food and bless it and serve it. But before anything happens, Jesus plays the role of the host, and it says that he took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gives it to them, and their eyes are opened, and they recognize Jesus. Jesus. You see, earlier it says their eyes were closed or their eyes were shut and prevented from recognizing him, a passive verb. And now when their eyes are open and they recognize that's also passive. That it's their encounter with the Christ that does something to them. And when they see him break the bread, all of a sudden all these memories start coming back and they start thinking to themselves, this is familiar, we've seen this sort of thing before. And we know from the gospel stories that Jesus multiple times had taken the bread, had blessed it, broke it, and given it. We learn in the gospels that there was a time where Jesus fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves after he had taken it, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. That Jesus did the same thing with 4,000 people when he took a few loaves and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples to pass around. And then, of course, there was the sacred night, the last supper, the meal that Jesus had with his disciples. You know the story, they walk into a restaurant and Jesus says, table for 26, please. And they're like, there's only 13 of you. And they're like, yeah, we know, but we have to sit on the same side of the table because we're gonna take a big photograph. <laughs> and it's at that meal that he takes the bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and gives it to them. The same thing he does in this home, in this unknown town called Emmaus. And it's then that their eyes are opened. But I'm not sure that it was just the breaking of the bread that opened their eyes to who Jesus is and was. I think it was that maybe for the first time in their life, they understood what Jesus meant when he said the words, take and eat, this is my body. That what they understood was not just that Jesus had broken the bread, but that he had done this in his own flesh and in his own blood. And when they saw the crucified Christ in their midst, their eyes were opened. Because you and I are invited to know Jesus by his wounds. And this is what we see in many of the resurrection stories. People who don't recognize Jesus. A little bit later in Luke chapter 24, Jesus' disciples are all together in a room and he appears before them and they're frightened and they don't know who it is. And this is what he says to them. Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. He says the same thing in John chapter 20 to his disciples. He comes and stands among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Thomas, who was not there that evening, says, Unless I see his wounds, I won't believe. And so Jesus says to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. One of the ways that people come to see who Jesus is is through his wounds through his broken body, through his shed blood. That in the moments we have experienced the painful end of something that had a promising beginning, when we find ourselves walking away from it, not knowing what to believe anymore, Jesus walks up alongside us, whether we recognize him or not, and invites us to find hope in his wounds because it is through them that we are healed. Barbara Brown Taylor says this. She says, The Christ is not the undefeated champion. He is the suffering servant, the broken one, who comes into his glory with his wounds still visible. Those hurt places are proof that he is who he says he is because the way you recognize the Christ and his followers is not by their muscles, but by their scars. Maybe that's only good news if you happen to be broken because this is is the place he has promised to be, and this is the place he returns to meet us again and again. I have no idea what you're walking away from this morning. I have no idea what road you find yourself on and exactly where it is you're going. Maybe it does feel, in fact, like a road to nowhere. I have no idea what has ended for you. I don't know about your disappointments, your despair, your fears, your anger, your sorrow, your grief, your disillusionment, the fact that you might even be here and think this whole religious thing is BS. What I do know is that it is in those places that Christ walks alongside us and says, Look at these. And maybe, maybe he does that to teach all of us. Whatever you're walking away from, it does not mean this is the end of the story. Because whatever the wounds are, resurrection can reframe your story. And when you encounter me, it has the power to change Everything. This is the mystery we proclaim in Eucharist. What we do when we break the bread and when we take the cup is we say Christ is in fact present here in the brokenness. And that this is the place he returns to again and again. That Eucharist is Christ saying to all of us, no matter what road we're on, I am here and I am present and I am with you. Even if you don't know it's me walking alongside of you, I am right here. And my hope for us this morning, as we prepare to participate in Eucharist together, is that as the bread is broken and as the wine is taken, you would experience the presence of Christ in the bread and the wine and your eyes would be open to your encounter with the resurrected Christ so that that might change everything. As we prepare for Eucharist, we have... A station on both sides, right down here in the middle. You can come down the middle and go up the diagonal aisles. For those of you in the balcony, there's a station in between the two balconies where you can participate there. This is not the table of Denver Community Church. This is the table of the Christ, which means it's open and all are invited to participate together. And as we prepare to do just that, hear these words of blessing. We have all in our own way walked the rusty, dusty, rocky dirt road to Emmaus, the road of bitter disappointment. The moments when, like those two travelers, we walk away because our hope has been crucified and buried and we are laden with despair. Though Jesus walks with them, they are blinded by their pain and hurt to such a degree. Their eyes are kept from recognizing him. And while they don't see Jesus Jesus sees them. Because he comes to the disappointed, the doubtful, the disconsolate, to those who've given up and are walking away from somewhere, which teaches us that he seems to prefer working with broken people, with broken dreams, in a broken world. This is why Jesus takes the bread, gives thanks, breaks it, and gives it to them. Because this is his way of life that he shows to us to take what has been given to say thank you for it and to break it because that's the only way it can be shared. To pass it around, to not eat it alone, but to find someone to eat it with so that the broken loaf may bring all of us broken ones together. In this breaking of the bread, may we know the risen Christ is willing to walk along as far as we need for as long as we need until that moment comes When our hearts begin to burn a little brighter and our eyes are opened and we come to see that the crucified, buried, and resurrected Jesus has been there all along, which changes everything. Amen.